one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Glad to have you with us, whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus. There's room for you here. It's a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that our spiritual growth is not just for our own benefit. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also spread that love to one more person. So it was Monday of this week. The Flake household was taken under by a stomach bug. So you're glad you're sitting where you are. Well, I'm better now, but I'm still in that, like, try to get your energy back phase after you've been sick for a little while. So I'm going to mostly camp out over here for the sermon this morning. I'll stand up every once in a while, but uh, you'll like this sermon a lot more if I sit down for most of it. 8.15 says, the best sermon they've ever heard me give, because I sat down the whole time. So it's high praise, high praise from very awake people at 8.15. We are doing a series of sermons on the life of King David. King David is one of the central figures of the Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible that predates the earthly ministry of Jesus. The Bible describes King David as being someone after God's own heart. Now, he's still human. He's very flawed. You you heard that in the passage that Katie read for us earlier. But at the same time, the descriptor remains to be someone after, a person after God's own heart. And so what I would say to each of us is that whether you're here exploring the Christian faith or, or you are actively following Jesus, let's dive in together to the life of King David, see what we might learn from what God teaches us about, about him. So the old preachers had this sermon illustration they liked to use, they, and you may have heard it, you may not have heard it, but the illustration was about how you boil a frog in a pot of water. The old preachers would use this illustration all the time, how you boil a frog in a pot of water. I'm not sure why you would want to do that, but they talked about it a a, a ton. I guess it was the old days they didn't have like the Taco Bell to go to and get a nice meal. I mean Kindred. They didn't have Kindred. (laughs) I, I make random references to Taco Bell, and I'm replacing those with random references to Kindred to try to get more Kindred gift cards. I have a lot of Taco Bell gift cards at this point. But as the illustration went, the way you boil a frog in a pot of water is uh, you don't turn the temperature all up at once because the frog will realize it and jump out. What you do is you turn up the temperature one degree at a time, and that way the frog doesn't notice the difference. But at some point, the temperature will cross a threshold where the frog cannot survive. And I tell you this because that's what I hear in the passage that Katie read for us earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, all the way to chapter 12, verse 13. It's like watching a frog boil in a pot of water. So we're going to watch how the life of King David, ultimately the life of his family, went off the rails in a way that he never recovered from and they never fully recovered from. So far, the series of King David has been very nice, positive. He was a shepherd. He killed a giant. He, uh, he had a soul friend. He helped a man named Mephibosheth, right? It's all these really, he, he helped establish the permanent throne of God. Uh, and today, uh, we're actually going to watch how this thing starts to go off the rails. And so, uh, I, if you'll hang with me, I think it'll be a worthwhile sermon, 
uh, but it, it's a sharp turn in, in the life of King David. But I think you'll find it to be a relatable turn in, in many ways. And what happens is not one big, giant, bad decision. It's a bunch of little decisions, one after another, after another, after another, that keep distancing him from God until he gets to a place he never thought he'd be, like watching a frog boil in a pot of water, one degree at a time. And then it's up to Nathan the prophet. This is sort of the ending point. It's up to Nathan the prophet to go confront him about this. Confrontation may not be our favorite thing ever, but confrontation is part of how we care for other people. Right? We're a big enough church that everyone's not going to know everybody. And so it's important for us to find a smaller pocket of belonging, a Bible study, a community group, a share team, a mission trip, to find a smaller pocket of community and to care for one another within that pocket, to care for each other in the ebbs and the flows of life. And most of caring for people is fun, most of caring for people is fulfilling, and sometimes caring for people means you have to say hard things. Sometimes caring requires us to step in and say, you don't realize how bad this has gotten because it's just changed one degree at a time. Let me tell you something you may not want to hear. Now, confrontation doesn't happen all the time, right? That's not a healthy relationship if all it is is confrontation. But we do need people in our lives who are willing to call us out. We do need people in our lives who are willing to tell us, who care about us, and can tell us when we're getting off track. So the question I'd like you to think about as we walk through the passage is this, how do you respond when confronted by someone you trust? How do you respond when confronted by someone you trust? And when I mean confronted, I mean it could be an intervention, it could be a strong confrontation, but often in our world it's a, it's a soft confrontation. It's a gentle confrontation, sort of a hey, you seem a little stressed, or do you realize you do this? But no matter what it is, how do you and I respond when confronted by folks we trust? This gets us to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The men of Israel are away fighting a battle. David has stayed back in Jerusalem. One night, David cannot sleep. He goes for a walk on the palace roof. He looks, he sees a woman bathing, he double takes, he finds her attractive. He sends someone to learn more about her. Her name is Bathsheba. Where's her husband, David asks. He's away at war. David says, why don't you invite her over to the palace to speak with me? Like watching a frog boil in a pot of water, one degree at a time. One thing leads to another. Bathsheba becomes pregnant with King David's child. David invites Uriah, her husband, back from the battlefront and says, why don't you spend a little time with your wife? You've been away at battle. He says, no, thank you, not while my, my fellow soldiers are still at the battle lines. So then King David gets Uriah drunk and makes the offer a second time. Again, Uriah refuses. And this is when David does not know what to do. And whew, this water seems a little warm. And so he hands Uriah a letter and says, Uriah, take this, don't open it, take it to your commanding officer. And Uriah is a very dutiful person. He does just that. He takes the letter to his commanding officer. Sadly, what the letter said is, by order of the king, put Uriah in harm's way. 
2 Samuel eleven twenty six. when Uriah's wife found out that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So how do we get to this point, right? At this point, David has essentially murdered Uriah as a cover-up of a cover-up of a cover-up of a cover-up of a cover-up. The frog is boiled, but it happened one degree at a time. Uriah is dead, David and Bathsheba are married, and you know this thing's about to get real because of the last sentence. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's the last line of chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you're always free to take the one in in the chair as our gift to you. And if you were to go find 2 Samuel 11, you would realize this is the only verse, it's the last verse, it's the only verse in chapter 11 that suggests there's anything wrong with what David's doing. It's mostly just this happened, and that happened, and that happened, and that happened, and that happened. In other words, if God's not in the picture, let's just do what we want. But because God does exist, because God is active in His creation, there is some objective standard for what is right. There is some objective standard for what is wrong. And that applies not just to some people, it even applies to the king. So 2 Samuel verse tw- chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. So by a show of hands, how many of you want to be Nathan in this story? At 815, there was one person, a third grader, (laughs) and we said, do not lose your courage. We need courage right now. Nobody wants to be Nathan in this story. Nobody wants to, but God stirred something up in Nathan. You need to go tell King David some hard things. And if he was afraid, he didn't let it stop him. Nathan walked into the presence of the king, a man who held his life in his hands. And he was going to tell him some hard things. And to do this, Nathan was pretty clever about it. Nathan told David a story. It went like this. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, if you're the king, people will regularly come to you with problems and ask for your insight. And I am imagining, as Nathan's telling the story, that's what David's thinking. I'm the king. He's having to arbitrate this situation between these two folks. I'm going to give him a little input. I'm the king. I love giving input. And here's King David's input. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David is furious at the rich man. 
How could he have done this? He doesn't deserve to live. That person has no place in this kingdom. He has no pity, no compassion, no sense of how his actions hurt other people. So at this point, God and Nathan and David all have arrived at the same conclusion. David just doesn't know it yet. When you're the king, it is not uncommon for people to come up to you and try to kiss up to you and say something to you like, you are the man. You're the man. Nathan's about to say that to David, but he's not kissing up to him when he says it. He's just told this story about the rich man and the poor man, and David says, well, a rich man doesn't even deserve to live. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. I imagine there was an uncomfortable silence after that. You are the man. You had everything. And that wasn't enough. Without pity, you destroyed people's lives as you just looked out for your own desires. But what about what God desires? Where, where did what God's desires go? Where did God's desires go in all this? And David realized that everything he had done in the shadows was coming into the light. In the shadows of night, in the shadows of his heart, it was all coming out into the light. Remember, David was just a shepherd when he was anointed king over Israel. He was the one who protected the little lambs from the bears. He was the one who protected the little lambs from, from, from the, the lions. And now he's the bear. He's the lion. He's Goliath mocking God and God's people. And so the passage goes on, the prophet Nathan begins to tell him how he's going to watch his family unravel out of this decision and, and the, the aftermath of it. But the passage ends this way, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. So I'll just tell you, if this is your first time to be with us today, this is not a Hallmark movie sermon. There's no, like, unexpected happy ending here where, oh, it turns out Uriah wasn't really dead. This is not a Hallmark movie sermon. Um, in some ways, I find that really relatable. Because as a Christian, I do believe that the, the, the end of God's story is a happy ending. In fact, it's, a redempt, it's more than a happy ending. It's a redemptive ending. That, that the story God is writing has a redemptive more, uh, an ending more redemptive than you and I can even imagine. But that doesn't mean that every chapter of the story has a happy ending. That doesn't mean every chapter of your story has a happy ending. It doesn't mean that every chapter of my story is going to have a happy ending. There are chapters that don't have happy endings. This is one of those chapters. But it doesn't mean that you and I cannot learn from this. It doesn't mean that we can't learn more about God and more about who God is calling us to be as we reflect on our own lives. So even if you're in the midst of one of those no happy ending chapters right now, it doesn't mean you can't learn from it. It doesn't mean that God can't use that to keep shaping you into the person He wants you to be. How do you and I respond when people tell us hard things? How do we respond when people we trust tell us hard things? How do we respond when people we trust 
hold up a mirror to us and say, is this who you meant to become? Is this who God wants you to be? Well, I have four thoughts for you out of the life of King David and, and generally the Bible more generally. I couldn't just stick to the passage for this morning. <laughs> Uh, I went to the Bible more generally to try to make this more of a sermon and less of like a Maury episode. I'm glad a few of you laughed like you don't know what Maury is. I'm a pastor, I don't, but. <laughs> How do we respond to these sorts of things? How do we respond? Here we go. Number one, number one, number, 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 number one. Be open to correction and hearing hard things, especially from people you trust. Be open to correction and hearing hard things, especially from people you trust. Proverbs 27, 6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. By a show of hands, how many of you like to be corrected? Same number of people want to be Nathan. None of us like to be corrected. But the first step in receiving correction is being open to it, to not being defensive about it. We have to be open to wrestling with the question, has this person told me something I need to take to heart? Has this person told me something I need to change, something I need to ask forgiveness for? Now, the truth is everyone has an opinion about everything. So the more people and things you have, the more opinions there are going to be. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the people we trust to tell us hard things, to confront us or to correct us if we're getting off track, being open to hear what they say, even if we don't want to hear it. And then, and this is, is, that's not the last step, this is the beginning. We take those things to God in prayer. We take these things, have a time of self-examination before God, and we say, we ask God, are we just disagreeing about preference or style? Is this a difference of opinion? Or has some, this person actually told me something substantial that I need to consider? Have they pointed out to me a place where my life is displeasing the Lord. Remember, that was the phrase from the passage. Has this person pointed out to me somewhere that I'm settling for less than what God wants for me? Those are big questions. You may decide to invite another trusted Christian friend or a counselor in to help you think through some of those big questions. You don't have to figure it out all by yourself. And the truth is, I would be wary of people who find you always in the wrong and themselves always in the right. I'd be wary of those kind of people. But the general truth remains, God often corrects us by having people we trust tell us hard things. God often corrects us by having people we trust tell us hard things. Number two, if you thought number one was fun, wait till you hear number two. Number two is to feel the weight of your actions, for me to feel the weight of my actions, resisting the urge to dodge responsibility or plead guilty to a lesser crime. Because remember, what did David say to Nathan? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He pleaded guilty to the highest crime imaginable. So let's imagine this moment of correction has happened. Whether somebody comes up to me and says, you are the man, 
or they come up and say, hey, you're the man, but do you realize you do this thing? Or maybe it's an internal conviction, right? When we follow Jesus, He sends His Holy Spirit deep into our lives, and sometimes the Holy Spirit will, will uh, convict us internally that our lives are getting off track or some part of our life is off track. So let's just say whatever's happened, we realize there's substance in the concern. There's something real here that needs to be addressed. What do we do about it? This is the hard part. You and I have to let ourselves feel the weight of our actions or let ourselves feel the weight of our inactions. We have to name the situation for what it is. Maybe it's a struggle we can't solve on our own. It's a place where we need the help of others. In many cases, in David's case, what he had to name was that this was sin. Sin means rebelling against God. Sin, sin means the harm that you and I do when we leave God's path and follow our own. We harm our relationship with God. We harm our relationship with people we love and with ourselves and with those who are struggling. We harm the creation and thus we harm the creator. This is one of the like central ideas of the Christian faith. When you harm the creation, you also harm the creator. If you don't know that that's true, Here's how you can test it. Um, walk up to a little kid who's standing by his or her parents and tell the kid they're ugly. See how the parent reacts. When you harm the creation, you harm the creator. <laughs> try that at home, by the way. Don't try that here. That's a home exercise. That's homework. But in the one shining moment of the whole passage, David does not say, it's not my fault. David does not say, it's not, it was bad, but it's not really that bad. He feels the weight of the harm he's done, and he realizes he's not just harmed other people, he's trampled his relationship with God. The importance of naming what we've done and being willing to feel the weight of it is that you can't be forgiven of a crime you didn't commit. And so this is why it is important to not dodge responsibility or to not plead guilty to a lesser crime. And this gets us to number three. It lets us turn the corner to number three, number three, which is to be assured of forgiveness in Jesus' name. Be assured of forgiveness in Jesus' name. 1 John 2.12 says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. This is the good news. Not only will you and I need forgiveness in this life, not only do we need forgiveness in this life, forgiveness from God is available through Jesus Christ. When a guilty person is pardoned, somebody has to sign off on that. Some judge, some elected somebody has to sign off on that. 1 John 2 says that if you follow Jesus or if you ever come to follow Jesus, you have been pardoned. Who signed off on the pardon? Jesus, always a safe guess at church. Jesus signed off on the pardon. In His death, in His resurrection, He paid our penalty, and He invites us to share in His victory. Through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, putting your trust in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We are invited into abundant and everlasting life. And the Bible calls it uh, describes the forgiveness of Jesus as being once and for all. 
Because sometimes people will say, well, what happens if like the very last thing I do in life is I sin? Like what if the, my, my dying act is to, you know, throw a rock at a, at a hundred pound angry dog, right? And uh, I didn't get to ask for forgiveness. That's not going to go well, right? Well, that's a mis... I understand the question, but it's a misunderstanding of forgiveness. Your pardon is complete. It's once and for all. Be assured of forgiveness in Jesus' name. Your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. When we feel the weight of our sin. The Scripture is also encouraging us to experience again the grace of forgiveness that comes through Jesus. Experience the grace of Jesus' forgiveness yet again. Through Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Through Jesus Christ, I am forgiven. Some of us need to play that on repeat in our minds until it seeps into our souls. Because of Jesus Christ, I am forgiven. You don't have to be who you were. I don't have to be who I was. Jesus is making us into someone new. And this gets us to number four, number four, number, number, finally, number four. As able and appropriate, make amends to those you've hurt. As able and appropriate, Make amends to those you hurt. Hosea 8.7 says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. We're going to come back to that passage next week. But the idea being the event is one thing, but an event has a follow-on. And that follow-on can be even more chaos or it can become something more redemptive. In the life of King David, unfortunately, it was more and more chaos. But it doesn't have to be that way. So our three-year-old is Indy. Uh, we're trying to teach her cause and effect. Now that she's three, it's about time to learn some cause and effect. And so when she will use one of her hands to hit or pinch, mostly her sister, her younger sister, her nine-month-old sister, uh, Mandy or I, my wife or I, will go and hold her hand, hold the hand she you know, committed the offense with, and hold it for about 30 seconds. A little cause and effect, right? You use it to hurt, and so you don't get to use it for a little while. Okay, so about two weeks ago, before this whole stomach bug thing, uh, Indy and Cora, the sisters, they're playing at the table, and all of a sudden, Indy's trying to get our attention. And so I go over and say, yeah, Indy, what is it? And this is what Indy does. She goes, <laughs> she turned herself in. Okay, I grab her hand, you know, hold it for about 30 seconds, and then I, and I let go. And then I've not taught her to do this, so maybe Mandy taught her to do this, maybe one of you who works with her in the kids' ministry taught her to do this. She goes over to Cora and pats real gentle on her back and gives her a hug. So I'm pretty convinced she punched her in the back, as I'm pretty convinced what happened, which <laughs> so I still don't know. But Indy gets this point number four better, better than I do, right? As able and appropriate, make amends to those you've hurt. As people who are reconciled to God because of Jesus, we can begin that reconciliation in this life. Whether in big ways or in small ways, we can begin to bring reconciliation 
to those that we've harmed. Now, the truth is sometimes we're not able because the person is no longer with us, and sometimes it's not appropriate because the best thing we could do would be to leave that person alone because we've caused them enough trauma already. The most loving thing we could do is just leave them alone. But the general rule is this. You and I can start to write a different story as we make amends to those we've hurt, as we make amends for things that we have done or left undone, which sort of gets me to my final point of the morning. As a Christian, are you and I supposed to pretend we're perfect, are we, or are we supposed to be imperfect differently? Am I supposed to put up a facade of, per- of perfection, or am I s- invited to be imperfect in a way that's different from most of what I see around me? What would it mean to be imperfect differently? Now, what would it mean to be open to correction, to feel the weight of the harm that you and I have done to God and to others? But not to be weighed down by all that guilt and shame, but instead to live as people who know I am forgiven in Jesus' name. He is making me new, and thus I can make amends as as I'm able and as it's appropriate. I can make amends when I realize I've done someone harm. I think this is part of what it means to be someone after God's own heart. Right? It doesn't say that David had God's heart, because God is not imperfect. God is perfect. But part of what David shows us in being after God's own heart, part of what I think the Scripture means by that is not that he was perfect, but that he handled imperfection differently. And his imperfection was severe, and it had severe consequences, and we're not trying to wallpaper over that. But he was imperfect differently. You and I are invited to be imperfect differently so that even in our shortcomings, even in how we respond to our shortcomings, we can be Christ-centered. We can be Christ-centered even in how we respond to our shortcomings, which gets me to my wrap-up question. By God's grace and with God's help, how can you and I be imperfect differently? By God's grace and with God's help, how can you and I be imperfect differently? Forgiveness is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. Forgiveness is the heartbeat of God. You can be reconciled to God. You don't have to be alienated from God and God's purpose in your life. You don't have to be who you are or who you were. God will make you new. Jesus will make you new. And as imperfect people, we are invited to live differently because of Jesus. Not to pretend we're perfect. We all know you're pretending. You know I'm pretending. When I meet someone who seems perfect, I know I just don't know them well enough yet. But we're invited to be imperfect differently.
to receive the forgiveness we need, to ask for the forgiveness we need. In a hard moment, to, to extend forgiveness to those who have harmed us. But all of this because forgiveness is the heartbeat of your Creator. God would love to welcome you home. Let's pray together. As we have our time of prayer, let me just remind you that during these songs and after the service, you can always go to the prayer station to pray with someone about what's going on in your life or what God is stirring in your heart. But just take a quiet moment now for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for our congregation gathered today. We pray for those who are walking through difficult circumstances, and we pray that they will see your provision and your healing in those. We pray for those who may have come in feeling in a hopeless situation, and we pray that at the feet of Jesus, we will all find hope that we need. Lord, throughout the Scriptures, we do see Jesus look into people's eyes and say, you are forgiven. And so it would be my prayer that we would put ourselves in that passage, that we would turn towards Jesus, turn our lives towards Jesus, let His deep and compassionate eyes look into ours and see Him say those words we long to hear, you are forgiven. Then, Lord, will you take us by the hand, help us stand up from this dust, and to begin to write a more redemptive story, not on our own strength, but under your strength by Your grace. We can't do it without You. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.